0: Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward thinking solutions to take on the next anything.
1: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch.
2: The Michigan primary results show political dangers for both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. As the Supreme Court hears a case on whether the administrative state can unilaterally ban rifle accessories called bump stocks. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnist Kim Strassel and editorial board member Mane Ukwe Barua. With a week to go until Super Tuesday, where 874 Republican delegates will be at stake. Candidates made a pit stop this week in Michigan for primaries there. And Kim, to my eye, there's some points of vulnerability for each of these candidates in the results that we are now parsing. Let's start with Donald Trump. Here's the result from the Michigan Republican primary. Trump with 68% of the vote. Nikki Haley with about 27%. Uncommitted with 3%, and then about 2% for Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, and other dropout candidates. But remarkable to me, Kim, that it's pretty clear by now that Donald Trump's lead in this Republican primary is all but insurmountable. And yet still going into this primary, Nikki Haley is above a quarter of the vote and Donald Trump is barely above two thirds.
3: Yes. And if you talk to the Trump campaign, they'll make the argument that those numbers that he's showing in these primaries, these early primaries are, in fact, well above what they were when he ran back in 2016. And they'll say that he consolidated support nonetheless when it finally came time to have that convention. And obviously, by the time it came for everybody to go vote, he did indeed have a lot of the Republican Party's base. Does that translate to this time around, given that people have now experienced him in office? Some people really do seem to be turned off by him. You have a number of polls suggesting that those who are voting against him now, significant proportions of them say that they would also view him as not fit for office if he was ultimately convicted of one of the crimes that he has been charged with. So I do think that it's certainly a different circumstance, and he's going to have to do, I think, some more work to try to get Republicans on board with this candidacy.
2: But notable to me, Monet, that Trump continues underperforming his polling. So there is a a poll out uh, earlier this week from Emerson College, that showed the Republican primary result being 76% Trump to 24% Haley. There was another poll earlier this month from Morning Consult that suggested it was 79% to 19%. And again, those are polls of the Michigan Republican primary. And the final result that we have now is off that by something like, you know, eight or 10 points. And so if you look at polls showing in November that President Trump is two or four Four points ahead of Joe Biden, I start to wonder how confident the GOP really feels in those polling results. And I agree with Kim that the job of Donald Trump right now should be to be reaching out to those Nikki Haley voters, trying to reassure them about what he would do in office, how he would govern in a second term and trying to win them over. And he seems to almost revel in doing the opposite and continuing to antagonize her supporters.
1: Right. Well, on the question, of Trump underperforming the polling in a lot of these primaries. There are a couple possible explanations for that. One is a long-standing Trump effect in polling, which is a theory floated mostly by his supporters, which is that a lot of Trump supporters realize how unpopular he is in the eyes of the mainstream media and in the eyes of his detractors and are afraid to suggest that they actually are going to vote for Trump in the end. And so the composition of some of these polls can sometimes be inconsistent with the feelings of actual voters. But on the other hand, there could be a more palpable practical problem that Trump is facing in terms of actually energizing his voters to come out to the ballot box because he has such a commanding lead. It's possible that people are being called by a pollster and saying that they support Trump and that they're likely voters, but at the end of the day, they're so confident in his victory that if anything comes up in their day, they're not necessarily going to follow through with their plan to spend a couple hours going to actually cast that vote. But either way, it is very clear that Trump definitely is not doing the kind of outreach that you're describing to the moderate voters in the Republican Party who have some hesitancy about his candidacy. He is focused on turnout, holding rallies that are aimed directly at the his most loyal supporters, contacting them online and trying to get them energized about himself and the possibility of coming back to office and reliving the experiences that made them so enthusiastic about him in the first place. I don't think that he thinks it's possible to win over voters who aren't already in his camp, and he doesn't think it's worth his effort to do that. And so that's a dangerous because he's going to need the support of every Republican affiliated voter in order to go into the general election. And this is the period of time when he could be doing some of that outreach. But he's confident enough that I'm always going to have above 50% support in every primary. And I don't need to really focus on uh, expanding my coalition right now.
2: Let's turn to President Joe Biden. There had been an organized effort by pro Palestinian, anti Israeli voters to cast a ballot for uncommitted in the Democratic primary as a way to send a message to Joe Biden about his Israel policy. And let's listen to Governor Gretchen Whitmer explaining yesterday why she thinks Biden can win those voters back in November.
3: This is a state that it's always close elections. There is a sense of urgency. And, you know, as I've engaged with with Michiganders um, of, you know, various backgrounds, I know that this is a a high concern. It is re-traumatizing for so many people who've come to Michigan or their their ancestors came to Michigan to flee Um, violence like they see playing out on TikTok halfway around the world every day. It is re-traumatizing. So I think it's going to be important that, you know, the administration continue to engage with leaders and individuals in the Palestinian community, the Muslim community, the Arab American community, as well as the Jewish community.
2: Kim, the final result there is 81 percent for Joe Biden, 13 percent for uncommitted, three percent for Marianne Williamson and about 3% for Dean Phillips but notable that that uncommitted ballot line attracted more than 100,000 votes and that compares with about 150,000 votes that Joe Biden won Michigan by in 2020.
3: Yeah, and the supporters and organizers of this uncommitted vote drive had said that their benchmark was 10,000 that they felt that if they had registered that that they were sending a message. Now, that was pretty low. Interestingly, Michigan primaries often do tend to turn up uncommitted votes in some sizable numbers. If you look back, the last three primaries have had 10,000 votes or more. In fact, in 2012, Barack Obama was running with no opponent, and there was 21,000 people in Michigan who nonetheless voted uncommitted. But this number nonetheless is very big, 101,000 people Trump won the state by 11,000 votes in 2016, Biden, as you said, more than 100,000 in 2020. But note, too, that these are only Democrats who are registering their discontent. Uh, It doesn't count for independents, for instance, and others that might also have concerns about this war. or Other reasons that they are not thrilled that Joe Biden is their nominee. And I think that's why Michigan is actually garnering so much attention is because the first swing state in all of these primaries that we've had. And so it's raising a lot of alarms about both candidates and their prospects in a general election Uh, Joe Biden. We were just talking about um, Donald Trump, but Joe Biden, this is actually even more concerning for him because these are people that he's already in office. He is cruising for the nomination and they are making it clear not just that they aren't going to vote for him in this primary, but they're sending a very clear message. And that's what the organizers said, is that these people are going to stay home in a general election.
2: Hang tight. We'll be right back with more on this in a moment. Welcome back. Before the break, Kim put her finger on what I think is so interesting about this Democratic primary result, because a lot of these votes for uncommitted seem to be in the areas you would expect if this is a vote against Joe Biden's Israel policy. But then again, a lot of these votes don't seem to be in those areas. So Kent County, that is Grand Rapids, Michigan, 14 percent went for uncommitted there. Kalamazoo County, 13% for uncommitted. Marquette County, 12% uncommitted. And so, Manet, I wonder how much of that vote is not a, a protest against Joe Biden's Israel policy, but other Democrats who are given pause about four more years of Joe Biden for other reasons, including his age. We've talked on the program about. The polling showing that most voters think that Joe Biden is too old. He is going in today for his physical, his annual physical to Walter Reed, but there is no word yet from the White House about whether that will include any sort of cognitive testing.
1: Right. Let's not forget that the worries about the direction of Biden's presidency within the Democratic Party started long before October 7th and his policy toward Israel. We have seen really since 2022 Democrats, particularly office holders and particularly Democratic elites, openly expressing worry about President Biden's age and his fitness. There had been a gradual increase in the number of public incidents of him forgetting things, stumbling that have made the public worry about whether or not he has the stamina for the 2024 re-election campaign, not to talk of four more years in office, and also the direction of his policies. So there are a lot of Democrats who believe that, particularly on issues like the border, he just hasn't shown the ability to actually govern in a way that sort of holds their confidence. And so there have been people searching for an alternative, for quite some time. And it was always an open question how much voters in the Democratic Party shared these worries that were being expressed by liberal journalists and Democratic office holders. The primaries are giving us our first chance to actually test that. And what we are seeing is exactly what you suggested. It's not only Arab Americans who are worried about Biden's Israel policy, but there is a sizable chunk in some of these uh, even rural and suburban counties around the state of Michigan who cast uncommitted votes, suggesting that they They are open to an alternative to Biden if somebody other than Dean Phillips were to raise their hand and uh, potentially get in. So we'll see as the primary contest continues on, whether that's consistent or whether Michigan stands out in that regard. But either way, President Biden can't be confident about the support he has uh, within the Democratic Party voter base right now.
2: Kim, the political problems faced by each of these major party candidates brings us to what might be the most underplayed news of Tuesday, which is that the super PAC that is supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for president says it has gotten enough signatures now to get him on the ballot as an independent candidate in two big swing states, Arizona and Georgia. And the super PAC also says that they're about 75 percent of the way to the signature target to get on the ballot in Michigan. And so you could have another option that voters would be considering when they go into the ballot booth in November. That's part of what makes this election so difficult to analyze and handicap is it's hard to know which side of the aisle Robert F. Kennedy Jr. takes votes from more, And that's before we throw in the idea of a potential no-labels candidate, which is also being circulated.
3: Yes. And by the way, RFK, it looks as though he had qualified already for the Utah and New Hampshire and Hawaii ballots. But what's really getting attention here, as you note, is that these are two swing states. And if you look at polls, and we haven't seen any in a while, but there were some polls from last fall showing him pulling a sizable number of votes in those states next to both Trump and Biden. And what does that mean? Because one thing that's just interesting here is, look, we've had some very, very close elections recently when it comes to the electoral count vote. And this doesn't just have the potential to maybe swing this race one way or the other in a joe biden or donald trump direction but i mean goodness it it seems unlikely still but if you had a, a no labels team or you had an rfk candidacy that did well enough in just one state or two states or states where they have different ways of proportioning delegates could you end up in a situation where no one had 270 i mean there's all kinds of potential i think that both parties by the way are creating for themselves with these candidates who really have just not sold themselves to the majority of their parties. And that is really very much leaving open the possibility of a more successful third party run than we have seen in a while. I would note that this is obviously very much concerning Democrats. And in fact, the Democratic National Committee recently filed an FEC complaint against the RFK campaign, alleging that its super PAC was engaging in illegal coordination with the campaign over some of this work for ballot access. We'll see where that goes. But this is alarming enough to D.C. insiders that people are now trying to derail the RFK campaign, as it were.
2: Another X factor is we don't know whether no labels will get on the ballot or where it will be on the ballot or even who its candidate might be. Joe Manchin has said, that he's not running for president. No labels express some interest in Nikki Haley, but I don't think she is going to go that route. And so we don't really know who they would even put up for this. But the most recent Harvard Harris poll, here's the question. If Trump was the Republican nominee and Biden the Democratic nominee, would you consider an independent moderate candidate running for the presidency? 56% of voters, Monet, say yes.
1: Yeah, again, I think that that's an inevitable consequence of the dissatisfaction with both of these candidates. Interestingly enough, RFK very much is not in the mold of what the no labels platform is looking for, which is essentially a more traditional establishmentarian type who would be able to synthesize popular views from both of the parties looking for someone who, for example, would pursue a comprehensive immigration reform package securing the border while also enhancing pathways to legal immigration. So, moderation on issues like abortion, taxation, trying to bridge the middle, whereas RFK is more of uh, building a popular following among more populist-inclined voters who are skeptical of the public health regime, have concerns about trade, and a few other longstanding issues that I think some populist people feel have not been addressed by either party. But I do think that the possibility of a viable third-party candidacy is obviously increasing. The question is, when you go from that theoretical place of someone who is between Trump and Biden in terms of their political approach to picking a specific person, will it be able to hold up? And will that person really have any success chipping away at the leader of one of the other candidates in some of these swing states? And so all of that's yet to be determined, but we're going to start moving from a kind of theoretical anticipation of a third party run into looking at exactly who that might be and how it's going to affect the general election if the current trend holds.
2: Hang tight, we'll be right back after one more break.
3: This episode is brought to you by Vanta. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at Vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com WSJ.
2: Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast.
1: From the Opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch.
2: Welcome back. Another big case today at the Supreme Court. This is Garland v. Cargill, and it involves whether the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives, is allowed on its own to clarify that bump stocks qualify as machine guns and are therefore banned under federal law. Let's listen to a clip of Justice Neil Gorsuch taking up this question at Oral Argument.
0: I can certainly understand why these items should be made illegal. Um, but we're dealing with a statute that was enacted in the 1930s and, uh, through many administrations, uh, the government took the position that these bump stocks are not machine guns. Um, and then you you adopted an interpretive rule, not even a legislative rule saying otherwise that would render between a quarter of a million and a half million people federal felons, um, and not even through an APA process they could challenge, subject to 10 years in federal prison. Um, And the only way they can challenge it is if they're prosecuted. And they may well wind up dispossessed of guns, all guns in the future, as well as a lot of other civil rights, including the right to vote. There are a number of members of Congress, including uh, Senator Feinstein, who said that this administrative action forestalled legislation that would have dealt with this topic directly.
2: Kim, maybe the best place to start here is, can you give us a sense of what a bump stock is? And how do we get to this point that we're having this argument about whether the ATF has the power to ban them on its own?
3: Sure. To understand this, you have to understand that guns are specifically crafted in different ways with different actions, okay? And the definition of a semi-automatic weapon is one in which it fires when you pull the trigger. Each time you pull the trigger, The definition of an automatic gun is one that fires multiple rounds with a single function of the trigger. And that is written into law. It's very clear. Black letter in the law. That was the definition that was put forward as Justice Gorsuch says, Back in the 1930s, it has been abided by by the ATF and others and manufacturers for years since then. And we regulate in this country quite aggressively the ownership of automatic weapons. For the most part, they are only allowed use in the military. There are some grandfathering things for some older ones, but you cannot as an individual go out and buy an automatic firearm. A bump stock is essentially a device that fits along the bottom of the gun. And it works in such a way that the recoil of the gun, your finger is essentially sitting there with the recoil of the gun, bumps your finger on the trigger faster than in theory that you could do if you were just pulling the trigger on your own. The ATF argument is therefore that this essentially makes them machine guns. Now, we can go into why that's not really the case. Real machine guns actually fire a lot faster than even things with a bump stock on them but the big point here is the legislative question which is whether or not you think bump stocks should be made illegal i don't necessarily think they have great purpose in terms of firearm ownership and second amendment rights but whether or not you think they should go or should stay that is a question for congress to deal with by changing this and as noted the atf in the past all the way up until 2018 In the wake of this Las Vegas murder, mass murder we saw in which someone used a bump stock, always took the view that a bump stock did not make a weapon into an automatic gun, that it changed on a dime in 2018. And I think the issues here are both the legislative question, but also, as Neil Gorsuch noted, the extraordinary penalties that ATF has just come up with, with very little to no authority to change anything out there without Congress's approval.
2: That's part of what makes this a fascinating case is it's about guns, but it's not exactly a Second Amendment case. It's more of a separation of powers case. And I spoke to a Second Amendment advocate this week who said that, in his view, bump stocks were kind of a novelty. They're kind of fun to use at the firing range, but they degrade accuracy because the gun is bouncing back and forth against your trigger finger. And so, they're not the way that you would want to go hunting. They're not quite that useful in self-defense. And so personally, maybe there's an argument for treating them with similar kinds of regulations as are faced by automatic weapons. But Mane I think there's not really an argument that that's the job of Congress, not the job of the ATF. You can look at the definition in federal law of what a machine gun is. And it seems clear to me and it seemed clear to the appeals court below that it did not include bump stocks. And as Justice Neil Gorsuch described there in that clip, after that 2017 Las Vegas shooting, there was a push to have Congress pass a law specifically banning gun stocks. And you had people like Diane Feinstein saying the ATF does not have the power to do this. And yet, as we often see, the ATF tried to do it anyway. And so here we are at the Supreme Court.
1: Exactly. I think that the bump stock question, like a lot of questions of how the government treats how certain devices can be used is a question of nested authority. It obviously begins with the Second Amendment of the Constitution, which basically provides protection for all modern regular common use weapons. And nested within that is the authority of Congress to create more specific guidelines around which types of weapons the public is able to purchase and use without violating the basic Outline laid down by the Constitution. And then only finally does the ability of the executive branch to come in and pass specific regulations come, but they have to do that within the authority that's been explicitly provided to them by congressional statutes. As Neil Gorsuch was suggesting, the relevant statute on machine guns clearly doesn't fit the exact definition of bump stock. It doesn't regard a single trigger action, even though it's modifying it to make it easier to pull the trigger, it is a individual trigger actions, which means that if Washington wants to make it harder for the public to access these weapons. They have to make an addition to that statutory power, which only Congress can do. And so the Fifth Circuit seems to have got it right. It seems as if the Supreme Court is leaning towards that interpretation and suggesting that just because there might be broad will to regulate bump stocks and there might be even some practical reasons to do that, doesn't mean the ATF can go out and do it on a whim without getting specific congressional authority to do so.
2: Thank you, Mané and Kim. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.
0: This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. That unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com WashingtonWise.